0: This is information that literally every single leader, and ideally every single person in the world needs to have.
1: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as a regular listeners you know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire you to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the show and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference for us. Today it's an absolute pleasure to welcome on board Edwin Macharia, who is the global managing partner at Dahlberg Advisors. And Edwin joins me from Nairobi, Kenya today. He's locked down because of coronavirus and so am I. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about the challenges and the strategic considerations that NGOs, philanthropists, and policymakers, need to keep in mind as we're tackling this pandemic together. Uh, COVID-19 is showing up in the global south, in developing countries, and there are a lot of challenges and really strong concerns that need to be kept in mind. Dahlberg is a strategic advisory firm, a very wide range of clients from governments to NGOs. Edwin, first of all, a heartfelt welcome to the Do One Better podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Alberto. Glad, glad to be here.
1: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. So why don't we start by telling us a little bit about Dahlberg Advisors?
0: Hmm. Thanks, Alberto. So Dahlberg was founded in 2001 uh, with what at the time was you know, sounded like a crazy mission. But over time, as the, you know, the thinking around impact and social enterprises has gained vogue, uh, it was founded with this core mission of creating a world where all people everywhere are able to reach their fullest potential. Uh, And so started off initially as a strategy consulting firm, very much in the ilk of the traditional private sector uh, advisory firms, uh, but very, very, very much focused on this question of uh, development and impact uh, in the world. Uh, Today, we've grown to be a group of companies that are still very tied to the same core mission, uh, where we provide a mix of strategic advice uh, through the Dalberg Advisors, which is the firm that I lead, uh, but complementing that, human-centered design, uh, data anal- analytics, uh, on-the-ground research, transaction advisory, media and advocacy, uh, and increasingly implementation capacity to clients across the world uh, that enables us to lift from, to move from ideas to actual uh, institutions, uh, initiatives, living and breathing in the world. Uh, We currently have 30 offices uh, across the globe, uh, and we maintain this dual focus of being a for-profit firm because we want to be nimble and continuously attract the best talent in the world, Mm -hmm. as well as that core focus on impact and mission uh, of making the world a better place for everybody.
1: And you kicked your career off at uh, McKinsey & Company in New York, right? I
0: did. I did. It was uh, back in 2001, which feels like a long time ago.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: Actually, you know, my September 11th uh, was actually my second day at work. Wow. Uh, And so you know, saw how that changed the world so dramatically, uh, and in part was a critical moment for me to recognize this pivots uh, in towards a much more, you know, rather than traditional shareholder value maximization, that there was need to bring a whole new set of tools and understanding uh, to, to these questions that would put individuals and people at the center, uh, and therefore have institutions uh, be able to respond to that. So, so that, was, that, that, was a, that was a critical moment, even in my own, in my own life and, and ultimately my own you know, uh, professional career, uh, to, to, be, to begin thinking about impact much more seriously and much more focused.
1: And in the Global South and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in terms of your, your market positioning, you are competing with the likes of McKinsey and so forth?
0: Yes, we do. And I'd actually say our competition changes depending on on the issue because we are not traditional just va- you know, shareholder value maximization only, which is where most of the traditional consulting firms sit. Uh, we, we also work fairly closely with national governments, the UN uh, ecosystem, bilateral, multilateral agencies, and so on and so forth. And what we have found is because we take a particular strong view in the need to marry local insight with global capabilities, we've actually become the largest top-tier advisory firm in Africa, for example, period. Mm-hmm. Right. So even without, you know, so we are larger than even those who do not focus on on mission and impact and purpose in the same way, because we've we've actually taken this this hard look uh, on what it would take to build a firm in these markets, which tend to be the most forgotten uh, and the ones with the least access to that kind of uh, uh, professional support and advice. Uh, and we've taken a really hard view on uh, localizing, which means in every single country we operate in, anything between 60 and 80 percent of people are actually of the country themselves, which right. means then we, we are uncovering a whole new, you know, um, you know, talent pool that previously was just not able uh, to rise above the, uh, and, and be part of these conversations.
1: I'm with you. And thematically speaking, I mean, you cover everything from the straightforward (laughs) strategy to water sanitation, agriculture, food security, nutrition, health. I mean, pretty much the whole spectrum of the Sustainable Development Goals. Right. We
0: do. And I think that is that is very much a testament that all of these things are so tightly interconnected that there is, you know, you can't fix one without fixing the broader ecosystem. And so one of my favorite examples, if, if you look at malnutrition in children for example right mm-hmm. that shows up initially in the healthcare system right and so it's when you know parents are going for antenatal visits that they that doctors and health and, and health workers recognize the child you know is malnourished but the intervention to it is not just a health issue right uh, it could be an agriculture issue are the parents able to grow the kinds of foods that make sense for the child in their development it could be a trade issue are they, you know our countries able to access inputs uh, or are they able to access global markets for the right kinds of foods and nutrition? You know, it could be an education question, right? Do people actually know what are the foods they should be feeding their, their children?
1: And tell me, what are, um, what are some of the issues right now that are front and center in your thinking as many of your clients, both private, NGO, governmental, are starting to tackle this pandemic uh, with COVID-19? What's uh, what's front and center?
0: Yeah, no, this has been a major shock, literally to every single client that we work with. You know, we've seen the dramatic slowdowns in the economies, which has that direct impact on private companies. Many of them beginning to slow down, and, and a bunch of them also, you know, potentially shutting down. Uh, same thing with governments, who have been uh, have been and continue to be the front end of the response uh, to this particular issue, and asking how are we, how do we make sure we respond to this. In the most appropriate way, particularly recognizing, you know, most of the most of the you know governments in the global south have very few bullets yeah. that they can that, that they can put to this to this particular challenge. So, are they using the bullets they have in the most appropriate way for the maximum you know uh, outcomes? The same thing with philanthropies, right? Uh, most of them have had to go back and 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 look at the you know and and look at their portfolios and ask. How does COVID affect our ability to do the things we wanted to do uh, with our grantees at the beginning of the year? Uh, what capabilities and assets sit with those grantees? What more can they do? And therefore, how should they shift their own giving um, uh to be able to support the grantees themselves as institutions, as well as the people who they had envisioned that support going to ultimately uh, to be able to reach. Uh, and, and And finally, it's also just individuals, right? Uh, the people who are the, you know are the ultimate beneficiaries of all of these interventions. Uh, the shocks of you know loss of incomes, the shocks of you know quarantine and lockdown, uh, what does that mean for mental health? What does that mean for gender and gender violence that we're beginning we're beginning to see you know take up mm-hmm. uh, in all all ecosystems uh, that has really rocked every single piece uh, uh, of, uh, of 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 our of our client base.
1: Is there a checklist, a best practice, a, a something or other that you're telling your clients? Look, uh, if nothing else, you really got to keep your eye on these five or ten things. What are the things that you're telling? Your clients is good practice to just brace themselves for this.
0: So we're having that conversation around three core things. The first one is understand deeply what the what the situation is today, and respond appropriately for the institution or the firm that you lead uh, today. And so in that context, it is. What, what, what does this do to your you know if you're a company, what does this do to, to your supply chain? What does this do to your own workers? what, do, what does this do to your distribution networks? Uh, if you're a government, what does this do to your fiscal space uh, and, and your ability to, to raise to raise taxes? If you're a philanthropist, you know which places do you invest in? Have you been giving money to and taking that portfolio view? And then it, I still in that immediate context, understand what are the things you can do today, Uh, that can have a long-term impact for your own organization and the business. And one of the things I've been emphasizing to anybody who's a leader is we're in the middle of the crisis. And in the middle of the crisis, nobody has perfect information, nobody has perfect knowledge, and therefore you need to constantly have a system of sensing, understanding how this, you know, how COVID-19 is evolving and responding appropriately. And probably more importantly than that, or just as importantly as that, is recognize the decisions you made yesterday might actually end up being the wrong decisions for today because you have new information or better information and that takes a certain kind of leadership and you know a certain kind of low ego perspective that that leaders need to bring to this that enables them to almost countermand the decision they made yesterday for the right decision that needs to be to be made today with the new information mm-hmm. so that's around that the, the mm-hmm. immediate context and immediate environment which leaders have to step up and lead the second one is start understanding what are the midterm impacts that COVID-19 would have, again, on your government, your enterprise, your NGO, and make decisions which provide for the best possible floor for your organization so that you don't crash through it uh, and therefore un- unable to recover, ultimately, when, you know, when when this turns. And then the final one is, is, is really being longer term and, and actually proactively starting to plan for what that recovery could look like. Uh, because the kinds of decisions you make today, you could find those locking you in a negative space because you didn't think long term enough uh, on what recovery begins to look like, uh, and you've either gotten rid of capabilities or assets or partnerships that you will absolutely need to 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 reverse the trend in the future because you're thinking all short term. So, so there's that mix of of of, uh, of conversations uh, and and perspectives uh, that I think every single leader should be should be focusing on.
1: Mm. And what's the sentiment out there? Obviously, without getting into any specifics of, of specific clients of yours, but in the in the NGO, international development space, philanthropy space, what is the sentiment out there? Are people panicking? Uh, and I'm talking about the leadership now. Are people, do you sense any panic or do you feel that people are taking a more dispassionate approach to this? And and, and, and being quite strategic and dispassionate at a time like this, maybe is easier said than done.
0: Agreed, agreed. I think I think I've seen people go through all this the phases and I think it is what it is important to recognize that the first thing you will feel is panic uh, and the world is falling on your head and you don't know what to do, right uh, And it is valid to acknowledge that that will come and then find a way to park that to the side and then move to the nuts and bolts of okay, this is happening, this has happened let me be deliberate in understanding the impact it would have on my institution and then let me be deliberate in starting to plan appropriately for what the response looks like and so there, there are some there's some clients you know we ourselves started tracking this in uh, i think it was mid january when 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 we started we started getting hints that that uh, that that it might break the the quarantine efforts that 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 the Chinese government was putting in place in Wuhan, uh, and so the first you know the, the first the first thing you go is is that doomsday scenario, right? There have been enough movies made sure. <laughs> you know on what that doomsday scenario is, and so that first you know couple of hours is panic and paralysis, but then very quickly turn and say okay. What does this actually mean? And what are the kinds of interventions we need to put in place? So we ourselves, you know, very quickly started thinking about what does business continuity actually mean? And how do we make sure we are elevating those conversations and those discussions to the senior most levels of the firm? Because we don't know what this crisis will look like, but we know we can be prepared today to make sure that we can respond appropriately as we go along. So very early on, I think it was within uh, probably towards the end of February, we actually said, we, we, are, we are going to stop all international travel for all of Dalberg. Uh, and that was a very difficult decision to make uh, because the nature of our work is working with our clients. And that usually requires a fair bit of direct engagement uh, with people, leave alone when you think about our human-centered design work or our underground research work uh, that actually has us engaging and interacting with, with citizens uh, sure. of the world. Uh, and so that was a tough decision to make at the time, uh, but it, but we felt it was the right decision because we needed to first of all protect our staff as much as possible, uh, protect our loved, you know, the, the 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 community within which our staff live and exist. Uh, because we know that in you know in those communities, people have you know the, the elderly people who they live with, the people who are immunocompromised, and so subjecting them uh, or make potentially making them patient zero for those communities would not be the right thing to do. Uh, and then finally, is just being good citizens of the world and not having us be transmitting as we are flowing through airports and uh, and various you know airplanes and so on and so forth, uh, trying to do that.
1: Now, in your case, you're not just advisors to. To these ngos and philanthropies that are active in the in the developing world but you're actually operating in the developing world yourself i mean you're out there in kenya right now that's where you live that's where your house is so even if you put aside the the consulting hat on a personal level this must be quite disconcerting and what what do you feel is the sentiment in a place like nairobi right now
0: there, too, you will find that same curve uh, where there was initial panic and now there's just anxiety that's building. And I would say that is driven because and, and, and this is a really difficult time for, for public leaders, uh, because on one hand, you want to be as protective as possible of the health uh, of your citizens but on the other side, particularly in developing countries, your ability to, to provide social safety nets for majority of the people who will be, you know, day laborers, you know, folks without significant amounts of savings. Uh, and so a lockdown situation that means they can no longer work uh, is particularly difficult uh, for your citizens to go through. And so now I'd say that tension uh, very firmly exists, even, you know, at the, at the leadership level as well as the community level. And people are asking, how will we get across this without social unrest happening? How will we get across this with the economy not in tatters, but actually still functioning and able to, to be restarted? And how will we make sure the few bullets that companies and, uh, and governments have to respond appropriately are used in the way that is most useful? Uh, and has the largest impact.
1: Because the notion of social distancing in a setting... In some places, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible with no running water, exactly. cramped households, and exactly. need for food, and need to go out and work, you know, without, you know, no teleworking or remote working possibility. You simply cannot do it.
0: Exactly. I mean, we we, had, we were talk- I was talking to a to to, to a friend uh, last night, and we were saying, you know, for those who are taxi drivers, you can't work at home if you're a taxi sure. driver, right? If you're a labourer in a in a construction site, you can't telecommute in, right? And and the challenge is, though, the people in those, you know, those are the most vulnerable, and they're also the ones who do not have, you know, for whom social distancing is the hardest is the hardest possible uh, access to running water. Uh, good quality healthcare is the hardest, and so and that is majority of of the people in most in most urban areas and in most uh, developing countries. And so, from the Dalberg side, you know some of the things we've started doing is is actually incubating coalitions that begin to to provide hopefully solutions that can be scalable across markets. And I'll talk about two examples. Sure. The first one is is what we are calling Safe Hands, uh, which is a coalition of of Dalberg, you know, and, and almost new age tech companies, uh, Copia, Jumia, Twiga, and others in Kenya, uh, as well as manufacturers and distributors to provide the, the the hand sanitizers, the soaps, the masks, and so on and so forth, uh, as much as possible, make sure those get to those informal, in, informal communities. So it's large scale manufacturing at the cheapest possible uh, cost. And almost everybody in the coalition has said they will put aside the profit motive to make sure we are protecting these communities uh, and then thinking through the distribution uh, as well as the you know the, the the people engagement on the ground to make sure that they are able to you know to 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 take up and use these products appropriately so that's one coalition that is, that, that is underway a second one is what we're calling shikilia which is uh, uh you know unconditional cash transfers uh, to those who identify to be the most vulnerable again to complement the efforts of you can get them soap water uh, you know, hand sanitizer and masks and so on and so forth, which right now they don't have access to. But from a livelihoods perspective, it's also important to try and provide that that undergirding uh, where they can still continue to operate and exist as individuals. Uh, we have seen cash having a, such a strong economic multiplier because it ensures that the, the local you know, shopkeeper is still able to sell product uh, and therefore, that supply chain is maintained and the local shopkeeper doesn't fall into being the most vulnerable because, the, you know, the business closes, um, you know, so, so trying to build, you know, that, that, that conditional, you know, unconditional cash transfer uh, as a second coalition uh, of initiatives that, that we're putting together. And the idea is, let's get them started initially right now in Kenya. But once you have, you've got into a minimum viable product, really take that to scale across, across the world. Uh, you know, by saying, here's how you can build a coalition in your own country that can do the following things. Here are the kinds of people that you need. Here's what we've learned. Here is, you know, almost open source prototypes of what we've been, been able to make happen. Please take this and, uh, and put it to good use in your own ecosystem.
1: Fascinating. And how responsive and receptive do you find the national government in Kenya, governments in general at different levels, whether it's national or, or, or local,
0: Right, I'd, I'd say incredibly so, uh, which is which is always refreshing, uh, because most people now recognize they themselves by themselves cannot solve this thing, mm-hmm. uh, and so the more you have, you're, you're building coalitions and large tents, and being clear what are the value add that everybody can bring to this to this coalition to make it successful is good for everybody. The more that that happens. Uh, um, you know the better the better t- the better the outcome on the other side. And so uh, I would say at this point from all the conversations we've had have found significant openness to to conversation. Uh, and increasingly, I, I think what is important is people being able to share their, you know, my, my, my wife has a great phrase, be- people being able to share their their logos and egos,
1: mm-hmm. right
0: um, uh, And therefore able to say this is this is common cause uh, because this is valuable for us to do collectively, uh, you know to be able to be able to shore up the situation.
1: It's been quite a strong call to action here in the global north on philanthropists to do more, to be more engaged, to give more, to do everything they can. Let me ask you about philanthropy in the global south and take sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, I'm thinking maybe of individuals like Aliko Dangote or individuals who are, you know, have a huge amount of uh, net assets. Uh, How are you finding philanthropists who are based in the global south Responding to this pandemic.
0: Right. I would say that one uh, mixed. um, That you, you know, in some countries, we've seen individuals step up uh, and actually start creating platforms for. Uh, you know, to, to respond to COVID. Uh, so Dangote, for example, uh, I think has, the, in Nigeria, they formed a business response to COVID. Uh, I think of people like Strive Masiwa and Titi Masiwa who, um, you know, uh, in Zimbabwe and, and beyond uh, with the Higher Life Foundation, uh, really stepping up and saying they want to provide leadership and platforms for for others to engage. Uh, and my general sense is people people are looking for platforms that they can plug in. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the global south, despite being some of the poorest areas, is also one of the highest in terms of generosity and giving, uh, you know, from a people to people perspective. And to me, that's why even those coalitions that I talked about earlier become valuable, because they, de- they by definition, becomes one, become ones that, you know, individuals with high net assets can contribute, uh, but also the, the man on the street who has an extra $10 they can give. Creating pathways to be able to harness and channel that uh, that that philanthropic instinct uh, to 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 help fellow mankind, uh, making sure that, that that those platforms are able to do that. And I think mm-hmm. the more those come together, uh, the, fa- the, the the greater and faster we will see those actions uh, be, be, being able to scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the other the other critical thing to think about from a from a you know global north to you know philanthropy perspective is this is unfortunately a situation where everybody is having, is is being called upon to respond to their own immediate community,
1: Uh right?
0: Uh, And so, you know, philanthropists in the US, you know, in in Silicon Valley, there's needs right now in San Francisco, right? Uh Uh, And so, you know, the the, the same phone calls are going to them as, you know, folks in Kenya, folks in Nigeria, folks in Zimbabwe, folks in Senegal. Uh, And so it's important to recognize that this is this this is this is a unique one, unlike others, where it used to be philanthropy. At least was it was you know we, we are helping solve some problems in, the, in in a world that is far from us, and solving different problems in our ecosystems. And you had that you know almost divergence uh, in, uh, in in in, the, in in philanthropy and philanthropic action. Today, everybody is being is being asked for the for the same thing. Uh, secondly, because of distance and the inability to travel back and forth. I think it's really important for philanthropists to to lean forward and 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 rely on insights from the ground up mm-hmm. right that the, the understanding of the ecosystem in San Francisco and the response in San Francisco is interesting but most of that might actually not be directly transferable to Tanzania right and so if you have already if you're already working with partners be much more attentive to the things they say they need versus Sometimes the tension between, you know, the one with, with the one with the check has a strong view, and you're almost seeing the local, you know, uh, NGO as a delivery channel. But actually, that begins to turn on its head, and 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 a lot more trust and engagement uh, is is going to be needed in the, in the, in this context. And the third thing I will say is, the the people who are furthest along in understanding and figuring out, you know, what COVID means, uh, that knowledge largely sits in the global east right now, right? It's China, Singapore, Hong Kong, where they just, they're they're weeks and months ahead of the rest of the world. But unfortunately, the ties with the global east uh, from a technical knowledge and assistance perspective is weakest with the global south right? And so a lot of that knowledge tends to be intermediated by a Western institution, right? So it's going to be, you know, research that is published by Imperial College or by uh, USCDC or by Johns Hopkins, that then the global South consumes and then tries to reinterpret. But actually, if philanthropy is able to help make that connection much tighter, much faster between, you know, the epicenter and those who are weeks ahead of all of us, uh, and those who are on the ground, because the China context for uh, Development perspectives is much closer to the African context than than New York is, right? Than Italy is. And so, as philanthropists are thinking, where can I pro- provide support today for global South partners? What, you know, the one question I would ask is, rather than the traditional, how do I go through a global North institution, which then works with a global South institution? Can I be can actually find a way to tie the connection between global South and global East because actually that transmission of knowledge uh, is is part of what needs to happen in a much more accelerated way in today's world.
1: Fascinating, and I imagine you might I imagine you probably have quite a bit of insight as well from um, well take for instance the Ebola outbreak in twenty fourteen and and how how social norms had to adapt back then in terms of. Hand washing and all of that.
0: Yeah, I read an interesting article over the over the weekend, and I forget who wrote it, so my apologies for that. Uh, but they made the point that, in some ways, the the the, the ability to have a strong public health response, uh, you're seeing that that differential is happening in communities and countries that have actually dealt dealt with a with a public health emergency or crisis of a significant scale in the recent past, mm-hmm. uh, more than those who haven't. Uh, And so, and I'll think of, you know, there are two examples that I can think of that that highlight this. One is, as you mentioned, Ebola, right? Uh, And one of the big things we saw happen out of Ebola was national government setting up, and we were involved in this work, setting up what were called emergency operation centers. So essentially, almost um, surveillance units, uh, typically at the ministries of health or sometimes depending on the political ecosystem of a country set up at, a, at an office of the president uh, kind of level, whose job it was, was to track the potential of things like pandemics coming uh, and having a system that they could activate fairly quickly uh, that, invo- that, that becomes a whole of government response. And so we've seen, you know, countries that had built that emergency operation capability uh, and had kept it alive were much faster at responding to COVID-19 than those who are starting from scratch because, you know, these are complex political, social economic ecosystems uh, and the creation of a new thing and determining who is leading what and who is following what, you know, that can take weeks to negotiate, right? Um, uh, and so that's a, that's an ex- excellent example of, of places that, had already set those up, but were much faster and much more able to respond. The second one is, you know, is, is HIV, right? Um, which, you know, the continent has been dealing with for for now, you know, close to 30 years, uh, but particularly so in the last 20 years where we saw a significant uptick in, uh, in investments, not just in in on the prevention side, but also on the care and treatment side. And one interesting thing is in that period, most countries built what were fairly good and functional, uh, you know, lab ecosystems for doing what's called early infant diagnosis mm-hmm. uh, for HIV. Uh, and early infant diagnosis for children uh, can only be done through DNA PCR uh, capabilities. Interestingly, that's exactly the same capability you need until rapid tests for COVID are are put in place to now go and you know to now uh, test for COVID, and so. Kenya does about 2 million of those tests a year. Um, South Africa, I think, has the highest number, about 6 million a year. Now, the fact that that system existed is becoming a really useful ability for countries to respond, unlike those who did not have that HIV-AIDS crisis and therefore just just never didn't have the machines, didn't have the technicians, didn't have the protocols uh, of how to do this. So, So there's some of those things that that are in existence today that we're beginning to see are becoming important assets uh, as countries on the ground are responding. There actually will be insights coming out of the, you know, the African countries that have been dealing with Ebola that could be tremendously valuable to Italy. There'll be insights coming from China and Singapore uh, that will be massively valuable uh, to to the African ecosystem. And so where we can make sure that that knowledge is flowing much more smoothly um, is part of how we will all get across this global crisis that we are facing
1: now. Definitely. Is there a particular platform or exchange of uh, ideas and insight that comes to mind? Uh, I know actually, you and I were introduced by a mutual friend of ours from the Gates Foundation. Yes. Uh, for this for this particular podcast, uh, is somebody like the Gates Foundation perhaps the that that leader for it, or is there a particular exchange that you can think of or platform?
0: There, there isn't one natural, and in some ways, there actually can't be just one natural one because the. You know, this is this is information that literally every single leader and ideally every single person in the world needs to have to respond appropriately to their own ecosystems. Uh, and so we ourselves have been, you know, have done a couple of things in 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 in, in transmitting that, in, you know, in being part of that that knowledge uh, share, right? So there's a there's a webinar that i co-host with the global ceo of, of amref uh, which is the largest health uh, ngo in africa was founded in in kenya uh, and has built really deep roots uh, across uh, across the continent we co-host a webinar every two weeks uh, focused on the african context uh for COVID-19. And the first time we did it, we, you know, he's a good friend of mine. We sat and we agreed. we said, we should do this because people need to know this information. Within 24 hours, we had a thousand people sign up uh, to be to listening onto on, on to this one. Uh, and so some of that, you know, so, so that's one thing we're doing. We did a recent one with philanthropists um, uh, globally that was co-hosted by Dalberg, as well as the Hong Kong Jockey Club, which is mm-hmm. the largest, uh, you know, uh, philanthropy platform in Asia, uh, uh, but with that we pulled in folks like uh, Darren Walker at the, at the Ford Foundation, uh, Don Gibbs at Skoll Foundation, Rad Shah uh, at uh, you know at uh, Rockefeller Foundation, my colleague Maji uh, who has led a lot of our early you know uh, emergency operations response work in Africa, uh, and the, and that was specifically targeting philanthropists to understand from others. Who are dealing with this question, uh, what are they doing, how are they thinking about it, uh, and what's a potential response uh, that can actually uh, get to solution. And then the final one uh, was just last week, we did the same one with uh, with DFIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, across the world. Uh, so you know uh, those who are providing you know money from public sources but trying to channel private capital uh, in a private you know in a private direction through private equity and investments and so on and so forth uh, a similar kind of conversation. so so at this point my my general view is it's important for everybody who has a community they can speak to to speak to that community and help you know accelerate the the, the knowledge flow and the information flow because we are in the middle of the crisis. And, you know, to the earlier point, what we knew yesterday might actually, what we know today might debunk debunk what we knew yesterday, and therefore we need to make a different decision. Who are the people who are out there trying to make sure that as many people have the right information to make the decisions they need to make?
1: Mm. Are you feeling optimistic that the world will come together, uh, not just as it's tackling this problem, but also post-pandemic?
0: It depends on time of day, if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I see you know this is a massive opportunity for the world to recognize how interconnected we are and the the traditional views of me versus you that construct no longer you know is no longer tenable or is no longer viable uh, because the risks that individuals face in one in one location can very quickly become global risks
1: mm What's your key takeaway? What's the one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode?
0: I think it is this question of moral universe, uh, to be honest. Um, You know, a question that I've been racking my brain on is, how do we expand individual's moral universe? How can we virally expand empathy and people's ability to understand how interconnected we are, and therefore looking out for each other is in our own, you know, selfish best interests. And and so where, you know, and I know that is a big, hairy question, uh, which without easy answers to. But hopefully, when when we look at we look back at this crisis, we can we can say, did we build back better? Because all our interventions had a person, you know, had a person at, at the center of what we were trying to achieve, and that person was not those we currently consider to be in our moral universe, but it's actually much more global and much more expansive uh, because I think that's the only way we will we will find long-term solutions to this challenge. To me, COVID-19 is the first of challenges humanity is going to face, right? Uh, climate change is just waiting around the corner. And if we can use this crisis to build back better, um, and an ability to respond will require us to all start from a position of of greater and deeper empathy, particularly for leaders uh, across the world, and then hopefully um, create the the systems the, uh, and the institutions to make that possible.
1: I love that. And indeed, I think in the face of this adversity, there are opportunities to be seized. Absolutely. Wonderful. Look, Edwin, thank you so very much for joining me on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure Having you on the show and learning from you and hearing your insight as well to our listeners thank you for tuning in as always please subscribe and please share widely with your friends and colleagues makes a huge difference for us as you know edwin thank you very much really a pleasure and i wish you very good luck as you tackle this pandemic and you help your clients across various sectors do the same
0: thank you very much alberto